You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, I'm so excited to share episode 17 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast with you today. Today I'm chatting to my friend and sister-in-law, Stephanie Reyna, about having difficult conversations with teachers. Stephanie Reyna is a school counselor and she popped into the podcast for our bonus episode about emotional wellness during the COVID-19 school closures. And she had a lot of insight about supporting teachers and kids and ourselves. Um, so I'm really excited to have her here today. Thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Yay, thank you. <laughs> so, okay, now that we got the pleasantries out of the way, I'm just going to tell you all the things that you've been doing wrong. Is this a good way to start having difficult conversations? Uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> right? Why? Why? Did I say something wrong? <laughs> so sometimes we feel the, the urge to jump right into these challenging topics, right? Because we're so worked up about them, but that's usually not the best road to take, right? <laughs> So what is it about some topics of conversation that feel really difficult or tough? Why is it that some conversations feel so hard to initiate? I mean, it could be a, a number of things. Um, working in a school, you are working with all kinds of uh, support staff, teachers, uh, administrators. Everybody has like a different view and perspective and experience and they bring that to the table. But I find like when you have, you get stuck in those difficult conversations where you have to address something that's happening, um, whether you, you saw it or somebody else saw something in the classroom with a student um, or between students or between student teacher, you're put in that position of how, how do I talk about this difficult thing? Yeah. I think that's a, a normal thing that just working in school, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen quite often, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, some of those topics that, that I can remember having really challenging conversations and still sometimes have to, you know, are about, about issues that people have different perspectives on and maybe people are in different places and learning about, you know, like about, um, about class or race or even just classroom management issues, um, issues of equity and the way that we talk to parents and um, all those things are everyone has such a different perspective on them and we can be doing a lot of learning as a school towards those ideas, but still we're all over the place. Right. And so there's so much um, gray area and so much personal feeling tied up in all of those things. And I feel it like it makes it sometimes really hard to have a conversation because we all come from such different um, perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've definitely been in those positions where um, I've had difficult conversations and then positions where I wish I had had, had the conversation because mm -hmm. I was too uncomfortable to have it. And so um, I guess the big takeaway that came from that was I'd rather have it than not. And even in those mm -hmm. situations where experiences are different, and like you said, we're at different stages of learning. Um, you know, we just have to have some difficult conversations sometimes, especially when it comes to um, issues, issues of equity um, in many forms and usually evolves in some sort of uh, level of multiculturalism or aspect of multiculturalism. And so that's going to play out daily. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And the time that like one of the times that stands out in my mind the most as an instructional coach was 
you visit classrooms and you see lots of small conversations with students and you see things in passing. And, you know, one time I was visiting a classroom and teacher was encouraging their students to, um, to really, uh, to do their best and not to fake their work and to, to produce something quality. And, and she was using an analogy of having a, um, like a fancy pair of like Jimmy Choo shoes. And if you, if she said something along the lines of, you know, whenever you don't have the brand name and you have like a fake pair of shoes, you know how that makes you feel kind of bad. That's the same sort of feeling that you get when you don't do your best in your work and you know that you could have done better. And, and I, at that moment, I was kind of like horrified (laughs) because so many little red flags went up in my brain and some of them I couldn't even identify exactly why that bothered me so much. Obviously there was some real classist stuff going on there. It just felt like a very um, privileged kind of comment to make, especially to kids who came from a background that didn't have access to that kind of thing, but really to any children, because you're saying that that is what matters is having something in brand name. Um, and that's what makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> but at the, at that time, I honestly didn't even know how to respond. And then the teacher, of course, turned to me and asked me, so what do you think? Do you agree with that, Ms. Beltran? And I just, I kind of, I didn't know how in that moment what to say. I said something like, um, I said, <laughs> you know, I've never had a brand name pair of shoes in my life. <laughs> I probably never will. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think I know what you're trying to get at, which is that we should always do our best and we should always, you know, I tried to like save it somehow, I guess, but there was some real underlying issues there, right? And I should have gone back and addressed that with the teacher. And I, I kept looking at it from all angles and I was like, I don't even know how to initiate this conversation because we're seeing things from completely opposite ends of a spectrum here, you know? Um, so that one, it still eats me up that I never went back and addressed it. And that all I did was kind of try to fix it in the moment, but you can't fix it (laughs) because that's ongoing, right? In the classroom that teachers with the kids all the time. So that was my responsibility as a coach to do that. And I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I never did. Yeah. I, I like that story because, um, it, that it just shows the teacher's um, was kind of like this disconnection between her life and the student's life and what they could relate to and what she could relate to. And you noticed it right away, but for her, she didn't have that awareness. Right. Mm -hmm. And you didn't, like you said, for all these reasons, whatever reason you didn't, you didn't have that conversation about it directly. You did respond in the moment and did like a little deflecting. And that was really good at the end. Like, this is what I think the teacher is trying to say. And sometimes we have to do that, especially when we're in front of the kids. Yeah. Um, then when we're not <laughs> and then, and then when we're one-on-one, that's when we're like, okay, how can we bring that up again um, in a productive way? That's not offending the other person that they really understand. You're just coming from a place of learning and you want the students. To, it's about the students really. Mm-hmm. And also acknowledging their experience and maybe that is their life experience, but to point out the children probably don't have that life experience, especially if you're working in, um, you know, communities that are low socioeconomic or oppressed communities uh, in whichever way. So, yeah. And I feel like that's even problematic, even if you're working with a a group of students who every single one of their parents has a pair of Jimmy Jimmy Choo shoes. That's a problem because you're, you're tying something to it. That is like a dangerous belief that they are better and feel good about themselves because they have these products. Yeah. And that comes back to values. You're right. Cause you could be yeah. working in an affluent school 
and that maybe that is really relatable to their experience, but is that the message you want to be teaching? Right. right? Um, and then, and I don't know, I don't know this teacher or I don't know. Right. Maybe that was never brought to her attention that that is a value that's different and maybe not as productive or um, just doesn't align with what we want kids to to learn about each other. Right. So not sure. You know, that's a piece. But I think following up on those conversations, maybe we could learn more. We can learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Hey coaches, I'm just gonna pop in here really fast because I wanna share something with you that I am so excited about. My course for elementary literacy coaches, The Confident Literacy Coach, is live. It's up and running and you can get access to it right now. So here's the deal. When I started out as a coach, I struggled. I had trouble defining my role and communicating it with teachers and administration, and I honestly didn't even know that was something I was going to have to do. I dreaded PLC days because getting my teachers to collaborate, to speak the same language and create lesson plans together was a total nightmare. And I was so stressed out by modeling and co-teaching in classrooms that I actually avoided it for a long time. It was not a happy time for me, (laughs) but things got so much better. I figured out processes to help my teams of teachers work together. I focused on best practices in reading and writing and identified some high impact strategies to support alignment on my campus. And I began to spend more time in classrooms after I planned thoroughly with teachers before lessons. Basically, I started coaching with confidence. I've collected all the processes and tools that I used to do this work, and I've put it all together in one place. So you can coach with confidence too. The Confident Literacy Coach is your one-stop shop for everything literacy coaching in elementary school. You'll learn how to define your role and communicate it to your administrator, what best practices you should spend your time on, and my process for collaborative planning, plus so much more that will take your coaching life from frustrated and overwhelmed to effective and confident. You can check it out at buzzingwithmissb.com. Just click the Confident Literacy Coach at the bottom of the latest post and you'll learn exactly what's in the course and why it will change your coaching for the better. I can't wait to see you there. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, sometimes that's, that's one of the things that we had talked about recently was how do you know when to speak up? Because you see so many things as a coach and sometimes you're there Sometimes you're there dropping off a stack of bubble sheets for a test and that you're not there in a coaching context. You're just, you happen to be in the room and you see something happen and you see, you know, like, uh Oh, <laughs> I think, I think there's a problem with what just happened, you know, or sometimes it's very clearly a problem. Sometimes it's a little more gray, gray area, and you're not sure because you don't know the whole backstory of what's going on. Um, so deciding when to speak up and when to initiate a conversation about a teacher with a teacher about a tough topic, sometimes it's like the, this huge step that you have to get beyond this huge hurdle. And I know there were times whenever I got really worked up, you know, one time I remember I was in a classroom <laughs> And I was visiting a classroom for the purpose of doing like a classroom visit and recording what I saw and getting, I was going to give feedback. And the teacher was playing the radio while she was teaching. So it was the middle of a lesson and the radio was on. Mm-hmm. And I was super distracted um, during the lesson. I had a really hard time paying attention to what was going on because the radio was right behind me. And I was sitting next to some kids and I was like, well, if I'm distracted, I, they can hear it too, you know? And I got that idea worked up so big in my head about how I was going to address that. Cause I was, I don't know why I felt like that was going to be a big hurdle. 
with that teacher. And it really stressed me out. <laughs> so sometimes I feel like we're like, should we, should we say anything? And then we get so worked up and it's not even maybe a huge issue. That's like, I mean, I don't think that was a value that she had about playing the radio while teaching, you know? Yeah. So, but it just, it stressed me out to that degree because it feels like you never know when you're really going to tick somebody off. Yeah. I agree. I've been in that position where I overthink, overthink, overthink what I'm going to say. And, and I want to say something. I wanted to bring it to someone's attention, you know? Um, but I think it's difficult. It's not, it's not an easy, sometimes we can talk more easy to certain people and not as easy to others. And I think I wanted to talk about that. Um, if you know you can approach someone, maybe that's a sign you guys have a good relationship. You have a good relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. And if it's a sign that you don't think you could just kind of express what you're feeling authentically and genuinely in a uh, compassionate way, maybe there needs to be some relationship building with that person and in the staff in general. I think when you're in any kind of support capacity, um, you have to take that extra step because the grade level, usually they're going to have that camaraderie of being in the grade level or whatever teams, if they're working with across with subject levels, like they're in and out day to day. Right. And we are all over campus. Right. So we might not working, might, might be working with that one classroom or teacher teacher that day. So really, when you start at the beginning of the school year, I would think really make an effort to reach out, be yourself, get to know people on a personal level. Um, So over time, it kind of builds your confidence. I just know that's something that has worked for me because I've been in that position where I felt uncomfortable or I didn't know what to do. And sometimes when I when I have done the back, it's like background work. It's like before. If I had done that, then I'd feel more confident. And I feel like also that other person would know like, hey, I'm not coming from a place of of bad intent or anything. Mm -hmm. This is just something. Yeah. And and it's easier to kind of have those exchanges with people when there's a relationship there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, relationship building really has to be in place in order to have any sort of any conversation that's meaningful, but certainly a difficult one. Um, But Sometimes as a coach, you do, you're right. You, you have some time to work with teachers and maybe you work with them more in a group setting, but individually, you might not have developed that relationship as much with certain teachers. You have the teachers who come to you and seek you out um, because they want support or they want help or they have questions or whatever it is. They have great ideas. And then you have the teachers who um, lay low and would rather you forget that they exist. <laughs> and those are sometimes the ones that you have to have those really challenging conversations with. And then you have, that's whenever you realize, oh my gosh, I really don't have a very good relationship with this person because I'm not sure how to frame this conversation in a way that's going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, there are some, uh, you know, groups that lay low and I would notice, like if I'm about to have a somewhat of a difficult conversation with someone and I notice wait, when's the last time I've talked to this person? I can't even remember. Then I'm like, that's not a good sign. I should have um, checked in with them before during this time of this event or this this planning time, or I just really should make a conscious effort, maybe even put it on my calendar, just Mm -hmm. a 10 or 15 minute. Hi, how's it going? What are some things going well? And so that's not the last conversation we had was, oh, I, I brought, I noticed something wrong going on in your classroom was something that concerned me right think you know um because if that's all the conversation you're having then of course that person's not going to want to mm-hmm. um is going to try to avoid you 
Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to my friend Haley from Teaching with Haley O'Connor. And we have an episode actually of this podcast coming out in a couple of weeks about um, coaching classroom management. But one of the strategies she shared that works well with students would actually work well as a coach when you're trying to develop relationships with teachers. And she called it, I think it was called the 10-2 strategy, which is um, for 10 consecutive days, you spend two minutes every day just talking to that student. Whatever one student it is that you're really trying to grow a relationship with, you just talk to them and spend time with them just for two minutes a day. And it doesn't have to be a big activity. It doesn't, and you don't want it to be like work-based. It's not about behavior management. It's not about setting goals. It's just talking. And the same idea I think would be really effective with uh, teachers because if you can go into those rooms just every day, pick a teacher, pop in, see how they're doing, you know, drop off some sticky notes if you must or something like that. People love things like that, but really just talk and say, hey, how's it going? You know, how, how's everything happening, working in your grade level, that kind of thing, and just see how they're doing as a person. Um, you, that goes a long way because you don't want the only conversations you have with people to be challenging conversations because then that's the way they identify you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's the way they see they see you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking of, um, yeah, I like that. I hadn't heard that um, model, that two minute. Um, yeah, I think it's great that it applies to students and to teachers. Yeah, you can apply it to teachers. Um, I noticed the, the teachers I felt closer with, I had taken the time to learn something about them more than just work. You know, we always talk shop and we get stuck mm-hmm. in that kind of that verbiage, but knowing something about them and asking about them or their family or something they like to do. Um, it's always, I feel like it, it naturally just makes a connection because then they connect that way with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation with uh, a new teacher and it was towards before, right before the closure happened. And I remember her telling me, I could tell she was overwhelmed and had a lot it's a lot to be a new teacher and to be learning a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so what gave me, um, what, what made me feel better about speaking to her is along the, somewhere along the line, she said, I just feel like you're very approachable. And I thought that's a really key word for anyone who's supporting teachers in any way. Um, how do you come off? Do you, if, if someone came, if you're walking down the hallway, would someone want to come and speak to you about something? If they needed help, are you approachable? So if you are always the one telling and giving the advice and saying what to do, um, yeah, I don't think that's approachable. Sometimes we have to step back and listen. And I really wasn't saying anything magic, uh, you know, in our conversations. I was just listening. I was really just listening to what was going on and kind of stepping into their shoes and imagining what it would be like. And really that's the essence of empathy Mm -hmm. is putting yourself in that position. And naturally, so that was useful to her. And so I felt like, okay, even though I didn't give a specific solution to something that in itself was uh, helpful. Yeah. That's a good point because um, coming from a place of empathy is an important way to start, you know, relationship building for sure. But definitely any challenging conversation because as coaches, you know, your, your, your role is slightly different than counselors in that specific area. There's a big difference. Um, a coach sometimes is like, okay, well, this is where we need to head, or I need to support this teacher in growing these best practices, or there's like a specific step that needs to be taken. 
And so sometimes as a coach, you feel like you want to walk into that room and just lay it on and just be like, this is what we're going to do. So let's do it. What can we do? And that is just, it's going to backfire because you're not valuing the teacher as a participant in that conversation. You're just directing, right? Um, and, and that's, that's the best way probably to push a teacher away <laughs> is to just walk in and start giving direction and saying, this is what needs to be done um, with, without really valuing their perspective or finding out how they're doing or figuring out what their view is on whatever the issue is. Um, starting from a place of empathy is going to be an important place to start in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, it, it, it makes sense that coaches do have um, and then depending on their administration, you know, might have very specific goals that are quantitative in nature. And so there's that added pressure. And so, but that's also a point to relate to is that I understand this is difficult and kind of where if the campus as a whole is feeling like it's a difficult time to meet a, you know, academic or a, an out, some kind of outcome measure, um, is that piece of like, yeah, like sharing kind of what, what you're experiencing too. It'd be a good point to like, you know, I understand that this, this, um, that there is pressure involved here and it's difficult and we're all kind of doing the best we can. Um, so yeah, and there have been times actually, even in this role, uh, especially when it comes to uh, behavior management, mm -hmm. understanding behavior. So, um, where I have had to kind of have the conversation about, um, ways to, to change, uh, classroom environment. And so I always do so with, um, you know, start with what are some things that are working well for you already? Because if you feel like there's something that works well, I'm not, I don't want to come in here and change and show you a uh, kind of behavior-based approach with um, rewards and tokens and reinforcement. Or if you've got a kid uh, class with a lot of uh, um, trauma, so you're seeing a lot of emotional responses and I, I'm going to come in here and lecture, lecture you about trust-based relational intervention and show you okay. videos. I could, I could jump right in and do a 30-minute PD, just me and you. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work. If you really want people to, I, I heard, I can't remember where I heard this from. Whenever you're trying to sell an idea, you hear the word buy-in, that phrase. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not buy-in, but believe in. How do you get people to believe in some sort of philosophy or framework or method in whatever um, area it is and it doesn't always start with, here, let me tell you about it. Right. <laughs> it doesn't start that way. So I like to always um, ask, like, what is going on? What works for you? Because everybody, like you said, has different experiences, perspectives, and personalities. And mm -hmm. so I'm not trying to make you be me or what I do. Mm -hmm. So I try to start there first. And sometimes along the way, then as you're talking and you're, you're relating to what they're saying, then sometimes there is like a little nugget or little seed of this is something I do want help in. And then that's where you go, okay, this is what I have. What do you think of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once they, once you're like interested in trying to solve a problem or trying to try something different or ready to try something different, that's when you can say, you can offer, well, this is, this is a way we could do that. Mm -hmm. And that's how I can help you. Um, I think that's a really good point because believe in is a great phrase. Because that is one of the biggest issues whenever you're struggling with people, you know, not doing guided reading and pretending that they're doing guided reading <laughs> or um, people who uh, don't do like they sit together in a PLC and they plan the lessons and then they go back to class and they do something totally different. 
And it's because they don't believe in that approach. They're not interested in using that in their classroom for whatever reason. Lots of different motivations, but that's the bottom line is that they just, they don't believe that's what they want to do. Yeah. And they end up just doing it for the sake of. Yes. And so when they see the results and that's, that's the most powerful thing. You might have a conversation. I realize you might have a conversation that you realize doesn't have, especially the, like the difficult conversations we're talking about, doesn't have in this 20 minutes. Okay. We didn't come up with a solution now, right? And after three or four conversations, now this person is willing to open and try some things. And if they see, wow, this is working in some way, that's so, an area that I've had some success is like, okay. Um, seeing some kind of result or some kind of positive change for themselves, not you showing it to them or you yeah. doing it and demonstrating it. It really, okay, then that's that believe in part, believing that method or philosophy. Um, and that's not easy. That sometimes is a really long road um, yeah. in school. Could be, could be years, not to sound discouraging or anything, but that right. could be realistically for real change. change. Yeah, it can take a while. That's very true. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that we can do in a conversation to start get by, like to make sure that we're working on getting believe in, you know, instead of starting out with the directive or a suggestion, um, I think one thing is really helpful is, is obviously starting with, you know, some positives, really framing your whole conversation around what you see the teacher doing well and what you see that's going well in the classroom. So the teacher knows that you're not just pointing out everything that you think is wrong. Right. Yeah, I think if you are, let's say you're in a scenario where you notice something, like you gave a scenario, like you're walking by and you're dropping something, you notice something, and you're like, this conversation has to be had. So you're going to be the one initiating that. They're not coming to you for help about something at all. Right. So I would first um, just check in with them, like as a person, mm-hmm. like what's going on? How are you doing? What's going on? And then asking how much time do they have? Because that's been another thing. I might thinking they have more time and they don't. So I want to make sure if it's something pretty serious or something that I'd like to discuss at, at length with a person, I don't just want to catch them after school and say, hey, I'd like to I'd like to kind of plan it. I don't know. What about you? Yes. What do you think? Like, yeah, schedule a time. I totally agree with that because you don't want to you don't want to pop in on somebody and then have a conversation where you're you're actually starting to talk about something important and then they're like, Oh, I gotta go, I gotta get my kids from PE. Or you know, it just stresses everybody or they're like, Oh, well, I I had to make copies before my kids got back from art and I don't have time to talk about this right now. Or I have a parent conference that I'm running to. And now you've added another layer of stress onto the conversation. Um, and then they're just kind of like, well, well, it's fine. It'll be fine. I'll just fix it. And then they don't want to have that conversation again later sometimes because they kind of cut you off. <laughs> so it is definitely better if you can have more of a planned time frame. and it doesn't have to be scary. You don't want to say, I just wanted to talk with you about something that I noticed in your classroom today. Cause that sounds <laughs> kind of scary, you know, um, Nobody ever does yeah. that and goes, I brought you a big sticker that says best teacher ever. Like that's not the way that conversation is going to go. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't want to freak people out that way. Um, but scheduling yeah. the time where you can have a conversation, I think is important. Yeah. I think the phrase I realized, the phrase I use is like, when, when would be a good time to check in? Just mm-hmm. check in. I really like to give us some time. Um, when would be good for you? And if they ask how much time, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, what do you think? Is that too much? And yeah. And so 
yeah, I think that's a good thing to do. And the next, the next piece I thought, I thought about, this is a real life example of what not to do. Okay. So similarly, I saw, I saw, um, and no, actually I saw something and then later I was followed up with someone else about something, Mm -hmm. uh, with a child. And I know this teacher needs support. And I did have that. I thought I had a, a, a good foundational relationship, like we talked about. But, um, when we met, I came off very top heavy. I really started with not the directive per se, but just, um, this is coming from, I was, I took the role of the teacher and they're the learner. And so I started to explain how things are done in a way. And I didn't realize it until after the fact that was the role I was taking. But in the moment quickly, I picked up on, uh, some nonverbals and just, I think that just comes innately from the the role that I serve. So I kind of have to be in tune to nonverbal communication and just the overall energy in the room. And it went from willingness to talk to complete shutdown Mm -hmm. to not wanting to say anything at all, not knowing what to say. And I went into kind of counselor mode and I started saying like, wow, like you're, I could see that you stopped talking. Like I could see, I just kind of note pointed out what was happening right then in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And I could tell they, they weren't in a place to hear. And I, I made that mistake. And so going back on it now, I wish I had really maybe kind of not indirectly, but would have pointed out the situation and asked what they knew about it first. Mm-hmm. And what, what are some things that, um, or going well and what are some things that they need help with with a particular student or situation and started more openly and just and also just reassuring them I'm here as a resource and I kind of just came at it directly and that was a big mistake and so but it took some time to reflect on that uh, afterwards to make that realization to come full circle Mm-hmm. So I would not, I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point because sometimes we feel like, well, we have a good relationship with this person, so we can just be honest. But honesty, I mean, it's not that you don't want to, honesty, you don't want to go the route of honesty. No, it's not that you don't want to be honest. It's that you, that, that it's not abnormal to need to chat for a minute to like, lower the inhibitions a little bit and, you know, be comfortable in the conversation and the dialogue before you jump into something um, more heady or more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, if that's, that's the way you initiate the conversation, yeah, I could, I could see that that could be off-putting, um, mm-hmm. especially if that wasn't what they thought they were there to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're blindsided. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not cool. It's not cool to be on the receiving end either. Right. Um, and, and, but it's, also, you want to be your authentic self. And so you want to be empathetic and authentic. Be yourself because if you are presenting yourself in a certain way around certain people and then you're changing that for you're talking to, that's going to certainly raise some red flags. So be yeah. yourself and be also empathetic. Try to understand what they might be going through. Listen, take in more than you're giving mm-hmm. at first. Uh, because there could be other factors, like you said, that you don't know, like you just saw a glimpse, you know, like your example, you gave dropping off test, you just saw something, you didn't see the antecedent, right? 
right. you didn't see the outcome, the consequence afterward. You don't know the the set like in behaviorism. We say setting factors, like things that are going on in the background with the child, with the teacher. Um, so we just don't know a lot. So we're kind of putting the pieces together. We have a piece of the puzzle, and we're trying to get more pieces, and then together we can solve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that one of the challenges that I certainly had as a coach, and I'm I'm guessing others, some others may as well, was. I had a lot of empathy for students. And so if students were being treated in a way that I thought was not acceptable or was just, I wouldn't want my own child treated that way. um, I had, it was hard for me to, to have empathy for the teacher in that moment, whenever I saw kids being treated badly. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I know that I was not the perfect teacher either. I know that I had my moments that I wouldn't want, broadcasted on you know the Ellen DeGeneres show <laughs> anywhere you know um I'm, I know that I did absolutely but in that moment whenever you see something happening it's so clear and apparent to you that it is wrong you know that you it, it's hard sometimes to say okay I'm gonna sit and listen to this teacher talk about why it was okay for them to treat this kid this way you know and so that can be a real challenge I know that I, I still struggle with that mm-hmm. sometimes um but I think the only thing that helps me through that to a degree is to know that that's the only way that I can make change happen for that kid. Mm-hmm. Because if I tell the teacher right off the bat, if I'm like, yeah, but none of that matters. The problem is you did this, then okay. Now that, now that kid's never going to get a better environment because that teacher's not going to listen to anything I have to say. It's such a hard place to be in. Yeah. Um, I think it relates to parenting as well. Um, when you're, when you're parenting or co-parenting with somebody else, um, you know, you're, you're going to see the best and the worst of that person. And so sometimes you do slip up. Yeah. I did yell at the kids. You see teachers sometimes yell at kids. You see parents who see the teachers yell at kids. And so, but we've all, we've all been there. And is this, I think a really key part of it to kind of help you decide what to do would be did you, do you have a relationship with this teacher? Mm-hmm. Do you know, is this kind of atypical of them? Maybe they're having a rough day. You might check on them later and say, how are you doing? You know, and maybe they might tell you, you know, it's just been a rough day. Right. And kind of, kind of the end of it. Right. But if you see a pattern, maybe it's, it's one of those really difficult. It, no, this is, this is their way of being with kids. This is how mm-hmm. they relate to kids is by yelling. This is their go-to mm-hmm. then then that would be, okay, I have to intervene. I have to, if it's keeping you up at night and you know it's wrong, you know that that's going to affect that child in the long term, or it's going to create a pattern, like you said, then yes, yes, we do have to speak up and we do have to do so diligently and with that person. So there is, there is a difference. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to know the difference, but either way, following up, it's just a good idea. yeah, I can just think of a lot of examples. I relate to a lot of those things. And I, before counseling, I was a teacher. So I have been on that side too. And there's so much that I learned collectively over years to, to inform me differently. Yeah, I, I could say for a ton of things, if I could go back in time, I would do X, Y, Z. And so that kind of brings me back to, especially with new teachers. I'm like, okay, I was, I didn't know all of this stuff 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it helps me to relate to them. So I don't come off as this. I'm telling you what to do. It's like, no, I've been there before. You're you're trying to put yourself in their position. 
mm-hmm. even those those teachers that you feel like are repetitively um, maybe making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, like, okay, what what can I pull from my um, experiences that my, I can relate to? Maybe not in the same aspect. I'm not doing that exact same thing, but I have had frustration with this with students or with parents or with uh, school culture. And so tap into something that you can relate to mm-hmm. and how they're feeling probably. Yeah, I think that's a good, uh, really good idea because <clears throat> I, I think about, there was a teacher that I know, now I know she was just constantly crying out for help because she was complaining all the time about the kids and never had anything nice to say about the kids and was, I mean, constant yelling and um, like physically snatching things away from kids and stuff like that. Um, and I looked at that classroom and I was like, this is the most stressful room. And I don't even know. <laughs> this was my, whenever I was barely starting, I was like, I don't even know how, to, what to do here, how to initiate this, how to, what, how can I make change happen in this classroom? And it was really a stressful situation. And for the teacher and the kids too, you know, and then over time I realized, oh, this teacher is desperately asking because, for help because she doesn't know any other way. She doesn't know what else to do. And she thinks that this is the only way that that behaviors can be managed in her classroom and it's not working. Mm-hmm. So she needed other ideas. She needed other options. But what I was hearing from her was all negativity. So it didn't sound like she wanted other options. Um, and, but over time, I got to know her better. I got to know the school better. And then I, I realized, oh, she just she didn't know how to ask for help. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know where to start. So sometimes... Um, yeah, if you if you do have some empathy for what that feels like to be frustrated, to not know what to do, and to just be doing desperately whatever it is that your instinct tells you to do, <laughs> um, then then that can help you work through that with that teacher and hopefully make some positive change in that room. Yeah. So a couple we talked about um, about you know staying positive and having a like a, a dialogue at the beginning of a conversation starting by um, asking the teacher about the situation and listening and being empathetic and seeing from their perspective. Um, as, as challenging as we know that can sometimes be, those are really essential components to having a, a conversation about a difficult topic or a topic that could be taken in different ways. So then to actually get into like a specific instance, because I know that this has happened to me sometimes where I visit a teacher and I think something was apparent I, you know, that in, in an interaction that a teacher had that I was present for, I think it's an obvious thing and they're not even, they didn't even register it. Um, so I'll say, well, how do you think that lesson went today? And they'll say, pretty good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. But well, that's great. I'm glad you feel like it went pretty well, you know, <laughs> but then I know I have to dig in further because something was very not pretty good there. <laughs> something was really problematic that we have to talk about. So sometimes um, one of the things that I will say is, you know, I noticed this went on or I noticed you had this interaction with a student or, you know, as, whenever I was working with so-and-so, I noticed this. Um, and I try to focus on students with my comments and what the students are doing and what how the students are responding um, because if not, it sounds like an attack on the teacher, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Have you felt that way as well? Like you try to focus on, you know, student, um, the way the students are responding in interactions that you're perceiving? Yeah, I think so, because that is um, more observational. That is not um, 
you know, have feelings wrapped up in there. So I have had conversations where I said, I saw so-and-so doing this. And sometimes that teacher is, didn't notice at all. Right. And other times they are very aware and maybe consciously, maybe they were actively ignoring. And I didn't know that. Like it was a strategy. It was planned ignoring. I'm not saying that strategy was working. And maybe <laughs> yeah. they, they knew. And so I didn't know that piece until we brought it up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, focusing on the students and what um, what they were doing, how they were engaged or not engaged, I think yeah. um, is probably a good place to start, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true, because sometimes um, what you mentioned about teachers not being even aware of something. One of the things that I've seen a lot is after teachers run out of patience for a child, which does sometimes happen, um, they're they are quick to notice when that child is doing something wrong and quick to ignore when other children are doing something wrong. And so that student will be constantly, so-and-so, Tony, 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 sit down, Tony, sit down. And everybody else is up and about the room and wandering and sharpening pencils and, you know, having a good old picnic or whatever they're doing. And Tony gets out of his chair, Tony, sit down. You know you're supposed to sit down. And that teacher isn't even really aware that they're doing that. They've just run out of patience and they're like, there he goes again, doing one more thing that I told him not to do, even though that's like literally the status quo in that classroom. Um, So, so yeah, pointing out, you know, well, I noticed today whenever Tony, you know, how, how do you, how could you word that? I noticed today that you yelled at Tony 9,000 times. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's, that's hard. That is so hard Mm -hmm. because that is a relational conflict. That is something that's happening in energy between the, the teacher and the child. And they're both in an, an elevated state of stress, of dysregulation. And so you can't, in, even in that moment, if you were to intervene, like you were happened to be there, yeah. probably one party or the other would take it defensively. Yeah. It's not a good place to have that conversation. So when you are talking to the teacher, when you bring up the student, it might bring up a little bit of those feelings from before. So I think that's something to be aware of. Um, but I can say I have successfully had conversations like that. And one thing, um, I don't think I, I, I said, like, I noticed, I can't remember what I said exactly. But one thing we came up towards at the end, as I said, at the end of the conversation, as I said, whenever, um, whenever you've been pointing out a student, a lot of times, there is always an opportunity for repair. So even if you feel like, and you might not say this out loud, uh, you know, but inside you're like, oh, I've just given up or I don't know what to do. I'm out of ideas. Um, it's okay to take a break from that student, take focus attention off that student. And you can always repair, like the relationship comes full circle. And so, like you said, if that person notices the first thing is they're aware that they're having this conflict they have um called out four or five times I think it's okay to say that and say you know I was just in here observing another student or I was just in there to support with whatever thing and I noticed in like an hour span there was quite a few times where um you had interactions with a student what do you remember about that Mm -hmm. and Probably, honestly, they're going to say, yes, I've been telling the student to do this, this, that. And, and so even as they talk, talk it out, they might gain some awareness. Okay, yeah, in that short amount of time, I was putting a lot of attention directed toward that student. Mm-hmm. And so that could be a time to insert a strategy. Mm-hmm. Like the one I said before, taking a break from the interactions with the student 
And then coming around full circle with a repair statement like, um, I really like this work you're doing or acknowledging, you know, I know earlier we were both kind of in a bad mood, acknowledging uh-huh. something and then ending it with, wow, I like how you, your handwriting looks or some sort of positive compliment. Um, it kind of gives them, kids are so forgiving. Kids, that's the, that's the beautiful thing about working with children is that they live so much in the moment. Adults, we hold grudges so much. And so if teachers realize that, that's a strength and they have an opportunity every day, a fresh start with a kid, um, that might give them hope if they've had a child that um, they've been having a difficult time with. And naturally so that um, teachers have a lot on their plate. And so sometimes they could hyper-focus on a kid and there's that's that relational conflict. So that's just kind of what... Um, what I have done in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that that strategy that you talked about making a repair statement and you know taking a break and making a repair statement. I think that's really helpful. And I actually think that might not be a bad thing to do. <laughs> Something <laughs> you know where I'm headed, right? If you have been um, having some challenge or strife or struggle with a teacher in a similar way, because it does sometimes happen, like you, you mentioned, hyper focusing. You're immersed in the work on a campus and you, those teachers are your students, but they don't want to be your students <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> and so sometimes like you, you see them in that way, not necessarily that they're children, but that they are your responsibility to support them in growing and learning. And so that is a lot of, of can be a lot of pressure. Um, and different schools define the coach's role slightly differently, you know, for sure. Um, but in my school, the professional learning, a lot of that responsibility was on me to make sure that teachers have the environment and the support and the tools and the learning that they needed access to. So sometimes those teachers that are pushing back or that are avoiding you, you do hyper focus on them because you're like, I need this to change. And then it makes you a little nutty inside because you can't stop thinking about it. And you're so frustrated and you just can't stop. But one teacher is just like getting under your skin and then they make little remarks that, you know, that just really irk you and, and because you're already irritated. So that like sends you up like straight up, you know, like to the moon because you're so frustrated already that it just shoots you right off. So I think that taking a little, little break, maybe from focusing on that teacher so much, giving that teacher a little room to breathe as well and to make whatever snotty remarks they want about you without you even caring. <laughs> and, then, and then you can come back later and say, you know, I, I, I noticed this is, this seems to be what happened with us or maybe, um, you might've noticed that I've been a little frustrated or something, you know, honest, be honest to a degree, you know, I mean, you don't want to tell them everything, <laughs> but, yeah. but you could tell them, you know, I'm sorry if, if you feel like I was, was pressuring you to do this, or I'm sorry if you feel like I was, um, nagging you a lot about, about whatever initiative mm-hmm. they're working on, you know, um, yeah. maybe we can work on it together in a way that that'll work for you, you know? So taking a little space and then coming back and trying to start over could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I th- and, and I think that we all do that sometimes. I say we, anyone, we, we, we push, push, push because mm-hmm. we want something to change mm-hmm. and that just digs the other person's heels in. Yeah. So taking a break is a good one. And I'm going to point some, I just noticed, cause I do it too. I do. I still do this. Um, something you just said that was really well-intentioned and you had a good follow-up and said, I'm sorry you feel that way or that, uh, that whatever. I noticed that's such a trigger word for me personally. And I think I've noticed that 
too with with uh, even at work and said, I'm sorry I did this or I am feeling frustrated. I'm sorry if I came at you however many times. Whenever I've said I'm sorry, you feel that. Oh, uh-huh. oof, that, that has caught me in, you know, family, friends and relationships. And so I, I have now really kind of changed, tried to, mm-hmm. whenever I can try to change that verbiage, just, just saying the I, I feel in the statement and then, you know, or I need, I want and, and acknowledging that person, you know, you felt this way or how did you feel uh-huh. uh, with that whole thing? Um, yeah, that's just something I noticed that I do too, mm-hmm. really do. Yeah, that's true. And that's, it doesn't bother me whenever people do that towards me. So maybe that's why it's something that I don't think about too much, but that's true. It does, some people, it does really bother them um, because it can seem like a cop out. I'm sorry if you felt this way. That wasn't what I did, but that's what, how you felt, right? Yeah. <laughs> putting it on them yeah. instead of taking the accountability for your own actions. So I can see yeah. that that was frustrating, especially yeah. if you do things that you've, you know, if, if it seems like you've been after, the, or if you have been after them, you know, constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Or sometimes you do say it, you really do it in a kind way. And that's just the happen to be the words that you say. Right. Yeah. And then if that teacher is still not ready to connect with you and they're still in that avoidance mode, they'll go around and tell another teacher, oh, well, she said, I'm sorry. She uh, yeah. felt whatever way. And you're like, but that's not how I said it. That's not the tone and the way. And she, but they don't. Yes, I could see that's happened to me where certain yeah. words I've said have been used, um, you know, against me, but they were my actual words, but it wasn't the way in which I was trying to convey. Mm-hmm. But um, there's still feeling that, that, that can, that can tell me something else that it's still yeah, kind of true. needed. It's still mm-hmm. the, you know, the pulse of that relationship. It, it's still hot. And so, yeah, yeah it still needs a little more time mm-hmm. or, or, um, or less, um, less directives, less approach approaches about things yeah. that need to change versus things that are just are or listening or checking in. Yeah. Checking in. I like, I like the term whenever you said it was a good time for a check-in. I like that one a lot. Um, I think that's a good point because that's like about choosing your language carefully, you know? So whenever you're, you're talking to a teacher, um, you don't know, it's impossible to see how you're being perceived, right? You can't, I mean, you can, you can read body language and you can listen to what they say, but that doesn't, you don't know what their perception of you is. Um, All you can do is hope that you are putting your language together in a careful way so that it's really accurately expressing what you're trying to say. So um, something that I've, that I have tried to do is avoid statements like, well, I would do this, or, you know, I think you should do this things along those lines tend to really tick people off because (laughs) especially if you're having a conversation that's challenging about a topic that maybe they didn't want to talk about in the first place, because then first of all, you're bringing up this touchy, this touchy subject. And then you're directing them like how, not only are you telling them what they should do, you're telling them they should do it because that's what you would do. And that's even, that can be even more offensive, you know, because then, Oh, well you do everything right. And I do everything wrong. I guess that's what I'm supposed to walk away with. Right. So that's a really, that can really, really bother people. Um, But I think choosing your language carefully and framing things as kind of like a positive problem solver, like let's figure things out. What can we do? Um, Really being a partner in the work can be a good way to approach like the tone of that conversation, even if it's about a subject that has like, that comes with a a difficult tone, (laughs) you know, like a heavy feeling with it. If you are at least a positive problem solver, then you're showing that you believe that things can change and that you will be there to be supportive. 
I love how you said partner in the work and you're using the word we because um and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to remember to say that too. I say we, but I like that you said that acknowledging that you're a partner in the work too, because it also implies that they're not alone and that you're there to support. You're not putting it all on them. That's why you're there. You're not there to tell them what to do and how to do it. You're there to be like, hey, I'm here to help you figure it out mm-hmm. and do it with you and follow through and be there at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I am a support staff. That's what mm-hmm. I'm, and I, I like that we, and using we is a very uh, collaborative word in general. And I like that. Yeah. I have noticed that I try to use we a lot. I think I, I, my intention is that it's collaborative. And also because I don't want to sound like I'm, it's just me making stuff up. <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, <laughs> um, like how can we approach this? What can we do? What are some ideas we could try, you know, because you want to be supportive. And I mean, that's the role of the coach and we don't want to like give a direction. This needs to change and then leave and then leave people on their own to do it themselves. Because if they were, you know, the whole idea of no better, do better you have to know better <laughs> to be able to do better. We're doing mostly, we're trying to do the best that we can. So if we're, if that's what we're producing, if that's the, the way that we're interacting with kids, if that's the way our classroom is run, that might be our best intention. And we need some kind of learning and some kind of support for that to change. I agree. So one thing, <laughs> one thing that's really um, challenging is whenever teachers just don't want to work with you. So it's not necessarily like it could be for different reasons. One of the reasons is whenever they have an idea of what an instructional coach does. So sometimes you walk into a position and the coach that was there before kind of framed their position or did work in a certain way that really left a bad taste in people's mouths. Like um, maybe they were a big gossip or maybe they would give a lot of directives, but not really help anybody or maybe the teachers never even saw them. You know, that's happened where they're like, well, they would do data and stuff, but we never really, like they never were in my classroom. So then you show up in the classroom, they're like, what are you doing here? Why are you checking on me? Because that culture hasn't been created and their vision of a job, their, of your job looks very different. Um, also, another reason they might not want to work with you is whenever you've messed up, like we talked about earlier, if, you, if you've messed up somehow, um, made a mistake, done something that you wish you hadn't, most of the time you just have to apologize for that. <laughs> really, you have to start there and take ownership and be like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this or I'm sorry, I, I wish that hadn't, you know, panned out that way or whatever it is, you know, you have to acknowledge that you had a part in it. Yeah, I think, um, especially when you're new to a campus, um, you are introducing your role and what you would like to do and be and serve for. Mm-hmm. But you're really reinventing their idea of what that role is every time. And so I could see that you know, that's a big challenge. And so and I could see how conversations like this person did this this way. This person did that that way. Mm-hmm. And I could see how ourselves like us feeling a little like, well, I'm do I this is the way I do things, you know, yeah. but they're just sharing that because that's their experience. And it could have been negative. It could have been positive. And so that's going to affect how we feel about the role and how we approach things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a good point. Um, your second point of about uh, relationships and um, when things don't go well, I think sometimes you'll be surprised when you really think something is kind of hopeless. You've tried all these things and 
a school year is a long time. And so something that may have happened maybe fairly at the beginning of the year um, or something that you didn't think went well, that's not going to be forever. And so I've seen relationships um, be repaired or you can always, or the phrase, I think we talked about this before, like you can always rebuild that bridge because people say, oh, that bridge is burned. Right. They're talking about a certain uh, person at work. And that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, 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 the opposite is true too, where you feel like you have a really good foundation with someone in a relationship and mm-hmm. then something throws you off and right. it's no one's fault necessarily, but it just threw you off. And so you're, it surprises you. Mm-hmm. So, um, I thought, I thought of these three words, um, when it comes to relationships that are not either like either of those scenarios, like you just have to be okay with every relationship with every teacher is going to look different mm-hmm. and there's going to be some disappointments. There's going to be some surprises. And then you might finish the year with having zero or very micro progress with someone. So it might be like a stagnation and you got to be okay with it, that you can't hold it all against yourself and be accountable for that change, right? Because it takes, it takes two people. It takes a team and who knows what's going to happen the next year too. So whatever work you did in whatever way, any progress that you made, just celebrate it. And then we can, we can move on. I think that nothing, we're never, we're never in a place where all is lost, especially if you're going to be in that school in the long term and you have long-term plans. Um, they're just steps along the way that mm-hmm. not to give up. You can make yeah. a positive impact. That reminds me, whenever I was a student teacher, I remember my mentor teacher was like, okay, you're going to teach this lesson on fractions. So I did. I taught a lesson on fractions. It was equivalent fractions, I think. And then at the end of the lesson, you know, we wrapped it up and the kids went home. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot to do this. And I was going to do this. And what about this? I didn't tell them this. And she goes, they're coming back tomorrow. <laughs> and that was something that stuck with me. And it's true. The teachers are coming back tomorrow too. And so you will have another opportunity if you need to, you know, like a do-over or if you need to kind of come back and, and um, try a different, you know, tack that might work, uh, they'll be back tomorrow. So <laughs> yeah, really good one. Um, so one thing that's really hard is when a coach is assigned to work with a teacher specifically about a tough subject or about um, something that's not going on in the classroom or that something the teacher is pretending is going on in the classroom and it's not. And it's often on some sort of timetable, right? So the idea is that the principal is like, okay, you're going to go into this room and you are going to make this happen, get this started, make this work, change this, you know? And it's not really, I mean, you might be a brand new coach and it might be your second week. And guess what? You're going to that classroom because you're going to fix classroom management or you're going to fix uh, guided reading, or you're going to fix that that teacher is only teaching out of the textbook or whatever. And um, that teacher did not ask for you. And you have not had time to build a relationship with the teacher. And so you just get kind of thrown in there and you're like, hi. <laughs> and so, you know, I used to start out by saying something like, so Miss so-and-so mentioned that you're working on whatever the topic was. So, you know, Miss so-and-so mentioned that you're working on classroom management. Or that you're working on guided reading or that you, you know, you wanted to try out something different in, you know, I tried to give the teacher the benefit of the doubt of that they were actually interested in doing this as well, that it wasn't just completely a directive because I had a great principal who would have a conversation with a teacher first and 
you know, make this more of an organic conversation instead of just like a random statement of, oh, Chrissy's going to go into your room. You know, sometimes they just say to the teacher, so-and-so's going into your room to, to work on this. And they, there's really no preamble to that. And that's really stressful. But if you, if you have a principal who could, who's good at having conversations, then um, they at least should know you're coming. <laughs> they should know what you're coming for, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the way I tried to initiate those conversations. And usually it did work um, for the most part. There were a couple of teachers who maybe were not in my, like, as far as being um, difficult in my faith, they were more like, like covert. They would try to push back faith and things like that. But as far as, you know, resistance to that, most of the time teachers would, would work with me in that session. But do you have any ideas on how a teacher, because you, you're developing a relationship with a, with a teacher at the same time as you're trying to do this massive work that changes things in their classroom. So what are some things that might be helpful in that situation? Well, I think first you'd have to consider the time. Mm-hmm. Have you been given this direct, like, is this you expected to show some sort of result in the next week? Or are you going to be working with this teacher? You've kind of been assigned to help this teacher all year. Mm-hmm. So the more time you have, the better, mm-hmm. because um, with any change, that person's going to want you, like we talked about before, believe in, you're going to want them to want to change, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't pull, um, you just can't pull, you can't force someone, right? So you can be there and do your part and reach out. But if you have more time, that's good because time is on your side. So I love this phrase. Um, I learned it like my first year in grad school. And I really have adopted it um, whenever I'm working what the, as best as I can. And it's slow to know. Um, and I think it applies to a lot of uh, re- relationships, but um, it's best to take that slow to know, to not assume you know what the problem is, not assume what you know is best, right? You're going to take your time. And that could be, I, I would figure for a coach, much like I would go to, um, to slow to know and understand a child. So when I'm trying to understand a child, I try to remember that mm-hmm. because children, sometimes they surprise you when you think you figured out kind of what are these factors affecting this child? And like, wow, there's things you, the moment you, you kind of assign, this is why they're acting that way. Nope. There's all these other things that come into the equation. So I feel like it could be useful to coaches um, to go in with that mentality. If you have the time to observe first, observe, um, then talk about observations, what they're wanting, listen to what they want out of this. Because since going back to the main topic of this whole thing was difficult conversations. What if you get to a teacher and they're like, I don't want anything out of this. They Mm -hmm. are completely, completely resistant. Mm -hmm. That might not be the moment to say, well, this is what you have to do. (laughs) They're going to dig farther. Mm-hmm. You got to be okay with that. You got to be like, okay, I know this is a thing you weren't ready for. This was assigned to you and that's okay. If we can take some time to figure out, figure this out. Like you said, we before mm-hmm. and being okay with maybe that meeting or that whatever you had with them, you didn't walk out of there with something like a tidbit or something in a pocket or a plan. Mm-hmm. But then the next time over time, if they see you're really genuinely there to help them or help the students, or, and listen and really listen to what they're wanting. I think organically over time, if you're authentic, they, they will pick up on that and eventually start to come around if you have that time. So that's a big part. And so do you see that? Like, I guess that's a question I have is if you've been assigned a teacher 
what's typical? Like, what are those conversations like? Okay, you have six weeks to do this or or is it kind of like, you know, I want you to support them throughout the year. Is it more like? It's more like as soon as possible. <laughs> uh-huh. Like we need to get guided reading going. Like that's verbatim what I would be told. <laughs> or um, we need to, you know, kids are just not learning because the management is, is just all over the place. So we need to make something happen in that classroom. So it's not, the timetable isn't usually explicit. It's usually not like you've got three weeks to do this. Or you have five months to do this. It's more like you need to make this happen as quickly as it's humanly possible. And um, because I'm also going to assign like seven more people to you in two weeks. <laughs> so it's, it's tricky. It, there's no, but usually there's not like a specific time frame. Some principals may do that. I haven't experienced a specific time frame. It's more of like just a pressure of, What's happening this week? What is in place this week? How much have you gotten done? What do we expect? You know, how, what, what changes are, are happening? Like it's a constant check-in. It's been my experience. Wow. I could already feel like in my body a little bit of stress. <laughs> Just imagining that scenario of sitting mm-hmm. in an office and your boss saying, I, I need to see guided reading ha- happening mm-hmm. in this, or I need to see whatever, you know, and guided reading is, you know, I've seen some of the, your, your um, presentations and the things that you created, it's a very complicated process with lots of verbiage and practices and, Mm -hmm. and methods. And, and it's like, wow, that is huge. That's like dropping a big theory and saying, we want to make this happen and this practice happen. And I think first I'd have to acknowledge like the coach, like that's a hard, so you're already feeling that. Right. And so that, that's going to permeate a little bit into your relationship with that other person that you are expected to move the needle on that's hard mm-hmm. that's really hard and that's the, the I mean usually it's something that has already been taught to the faculty and so usually there have been supports as a, at a as a school level and at a like, grade level but then this is like an individual level support usually not always but most of the time it's something that was like the whole school is expected to do this and it's not in place in certain rooms so your responsibility is to go so it's not like it's brand new to those teachers you're not usually walking in and saying oh this is a whole new thing it's more like okay we've been working on this for two years and you still never do it so so what are we going to do now that's that's I mean that's just what's on, on paper you know but you wouldn't obviously say that so <laughs> so those that's kind of the challenge is to um to yeah to make something happen when the teacher is basically saying yeah you've taught me about this for a while and I I have not implemented it um mm-hmm. And so that is a real challenge because there's, there's some kind of resistance there, whether it's that the teacher doesn't understand or they are like, they don't have the belief in, or they, um, they just really don't want to be doing their jobs anymore. Sometimes that's a factor. And, um, they're like, I'm going to get out of here with as little effort as possible every day, because I'm counting the days till I can do a different job. And that's honestly, that sometimes people are in that role, you know? So, so yeah, and building that relationship quickly with the teacher at the same time as getting them to do a thing that they've pretty much expressed they don't have any interest in doing is, can be a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all those scenarios just got me thinking that's probably the first thing that you need to do is, is figure out the root cause of why the teacher's not doing it. And th- all those scenarios are real. Mm-hmm. And some of them ha- might be easier to work with than others. Right. So, you know, and, and through and through working with someone, sometimes realizations come out that, wow, this teacher is experiencing burnout. 
you know, or this teacher is, is ready to move on from this position or maybe grade level or something. Um, Sometimes those are really big realizations that are beyond just teaching a method for, you know, a subject area in in a class. And so that's a big, that's a big challenge to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's, that's probably the biggest challenge a coaches have is working in a classroom where they've been directed to. And so I think that definitely figuring out what is the, the root cause of what's going on, because you can't, if you're trying to handle every situation in the same way, if you go into every classroom where guided reading is not in place and you go, okay, well, I'm going to do um, uh, a review, like a refresher course on how to do guided reading and then we'll plan their lessons and we'll do this and that. But the teacher isn't interested in that because they didn't want to do it in the first place. Then, then you have to start back there, you know, with, well, let's, where are your students? Let's take a look at, at what's in place already. You know, what are some of the things that they they are doing well, where are some of the areas that they can grow, and then you can possibly use guided reading as a vehicle to get them to do that. But if if you're trying to just reteach, and they understood it just fine, they're just not interested, <laughs> then, then there's really no point in reteaching, you know. But if you're going in trying to start accountability measures, and the problem is that the teacher didn't understand how to do what they needed to do, then you have to do the reteaching. The accountability measures aren't going to help. They didn't understand how to do it. So you have to go through and model and support and co-plan and all those kinds of things. They need the teaching. So figuring out the motivation for them not doing whatever it is you're intended to do, that is a huge piece of getting started um, in, in working in those classrooms where you've been assigned. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing to do <laughs> no matter what classroom you're working in, but definitely in a classroom whenever you've been directed to do it. So sometimes... You know, whenever you're working with a teacher who is part of a grade level, for example, I, you know, I've experienced this a lot, um, where maybe the teacher frequently comes to PLC and they're completely unprepared, you know, even though those norms are, have been stated or the expectations have been made clear, you know, the grade level has assigned roles and they figured it out. And then that teacher just shows up without anything, you know, or um, those, they, they miss deadlines. They are responsible for turning something over to their grade level and then they don't do it. And then the grade level is counting on them. You know, so one of the things that's been really helpful in having those kinds of conversations with teachers is referring back to those norms that we created together or to the expectations at the grade level decided. For example, if they say, okay, well, Miss so-and-so is going to plan for math and Mr. So-and-so is going to plan for writing. And if they're all taking on roles and the person who's responsible for social studies shows up without anything, well, that was something they decided as a team. So then it's very easy for me to come back to that and say, hey, you know, I noticed that today, whenever we met, um, you didn't have social studies plans to share, you know, with your grade level. Can you tell me what's going on? Um, Or, you know, did you need some help with that or something along those lines? I can start out that way. But then if it's a pattern, I can address it as, well, this is something that was agreed upon as a grade level. So this is what we need to do for our team, you know, Um, without having any expectation written out or any norm written out. It's more of a challenge because whenever things are fuzzy or when we haven't agreed on the way we're going to work together, then you're just making assumptions about the way to you, it's obvious things should work, but that teacher can very easily say, well, that's, I was never told that's what we were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I have found that having those norms in place are really helpful um, to be able to talk with, with teachers about something specific that's black and white. So, oh, so then one thing that, did you have something to say about norms? 
Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, having norms is useful. And when you, when I realized when you were talking, when you're talking about norms, mm -hmm. I was thinking about relationship norms and mm -hmm. the norms that I think you're referring to are kind of like expectations of the group of account of what's accountable, who's accountable for what and like delegating tasks. Is that kind of, they usually cover both. So it usually covers like the way that we interact and the way that we like what work needs to be done. Um, because they're usually created for the purpose of that team. So if it's for like PLC, but for planning, then there's a specific set of norms that you really would refer to that would be, you know, maybe everybody comes prepared, but also, you know, we start on time, that kind of thing, or share your ideas, um, uh, listen to, you know, listen to each other's thoughts and, you know, think, I, I can't think of the examples right now, but those kind, it just really is a broad spectrum of norms that really cover the way that team's going to work together, you know, including relationships and accountability. Yeah. It's much like uh, classroom norms. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. And, and I found when I was a teacher creating them together and it sounds like, I think you've done that too, where you create mm -hmm. the norms together. Right. So everybody has that like believe in, right. That this was all created together. We all agreed upon these things, mm -hmm. uh, would be very useful and go back to, I think one thing, um, that popped into my mind that's important too, is just like with kids and we set these norms and expectations, we're not going to always be able to hold to the standard. And even when there's a repetitive, um, norm not being followed through with, we're going to take the, um, compassionate, and also problem solving approach. We don't want anyone to feel shamed. Like, wow, because it'd be really easy. I would imagine mm -hmm. if you're in a, a group that's established uh, both accountability and relationship norms, mm -hmm. and you have one person who's struggling with one norm, like you could even the verbiage of how I said that, I realized I, I almost said violating a norm. And then, I changed <laughs> and then I changed it. I was like, no, they're struggling with it in some mm -hmm. capacity. And how you said you meet with them individually and say like, what's going on? I noticed, you know, this. And what's going on here and how can I help um, is important. We don't want um, people kind of ganging up on each other like this person has it. We want to really figure out the why and how we can support mm -hmm. and get back to. And I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen this, I would imagine that sometimes a norm has to be changed. Sure. If um, people, we start to see a pattern of like not just one teacher, but it, it's not working. Whatever's not yeah, working. So right. you have to go back to the drawing board, you know. Yeah, for sure. That's very true because they're supposed to be purposeful and useful. They're supposed to guide the work that you do together. So if they don't, if they're not doing that anymore, then you have to adjust them yeah, to make them relevant. Um, I actually go through a process for that in my course, The Confident Literacy Coach. One of the sessions in how to work with teens and teachers is about how to create norms. And it's like a whole process where people brainstorm and they talk about what they would like to envision a really great, um, a high functioning team and what they do whenever they work together, and then things that they would not like to see their team do as well, things that maybe they've seen before that they do not want to have happen during their teamwork. And then um, then they kind of work on wording them together in some statements and then deciding, sort of voting on which ones they want to include in their their collection of norms. Because you don't want to have too many. Because as you have, if you have eight, nine, ten norms, then nobody, that's just a whole list of stuff nobody's going to do. So it's <laughs> just too much. Hard to um, live up to that. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible. <laughs> so, um, so one thing that I wanted to make sure that we talked about uh, before we wrapped up today was the idea of privilege. 
and how that impacts the way that we have conversations about tough conversations. Privilege might be the tough conversation we're having to have. (laughs) And it also might be something we have to keep in mind as we're having a conversation about a different topic. Can you talk a little bit like what is, can you define privilege for us or like, you know, share a little bit about what that means? Sure. I think first it starts with identifying yourself and awareness of where you hold privilege. And so privilege is not something that sometimes is so apparent. There's things that you might experience that I might not due to different identities. And I wouldn't know that unless you told me. Um, unless I, I, I made it a point to find out more about it. So I wouldn't know until someone told me, you know, this is a different experience for me. And so I wanted to kind of, um, just review, um, the areas of privilege. I think often, um, sometimes we hear a lot of, a lot about race and a lot about ethnicity, but there are so many, um, components that are to, um, identity that in which a person can hold a privilege in. And so um, I really like to go back to this framework. It's called the addressing framework. So it's A-D-D-R-E-S-S-I-N-G. And it's by uh, Hayes, author Hayes. And so A stands for age and generational influences. Uh, D stands for developmental or acquired disabilities. R, religion and spiritual orientation. E, ethnicity. S, socioeconomic status, Uh, the other S, sexual orientation, I, indigenous heritage, national origin, gender. And there are some other uh, supplemental ones, uh, such as sizeism. That's on there, too. And that's kind of been uh, talked about. So kind of going through those categories and really writing down who you are and how you um, represent those identities. It's probably really an important self-work to do at some point. Um, I know I did in uh, graduate school, and I had done something like this a long time ago as well. But I think when you're having especially difficult conversations around a topic, whether they were the ones that brought it up or you did, or maybe it was some sort of subtle, unintentional remark, which is usually called like a microaggression um, towards a person, or you notice that. It's hard to have these conversations, but I think we have to have that awareness of ourselves first. So if you realize you are in a privileged group, let's say, um, you know, like I'll talk about myself, like I am American born. I am native English speaker. Yes, I'm bilingual and I speak Spanish. But if I'm speaking to a family um, who is not native born American and they their first language was not English and they are um they want to be heard in a certain way and the topic is around language or it's around, um, around ethnicity or, or around um, subtly under country of origin. Like they're speaking to their experience, what they had in the country and outside of the country. Mm-hmm. I really need to take a step back. I need to be in like the back seat. I don't need to be leading a conversation. I need to really be an active listener and try to understand their experience and and acknowledge it might not be something I can relate to because I have not experienced that. But the mere fact that you're listening um, and you're trying your best is a start. And so it just made me think of the conversation we had at the very beginning when we started talking about the teacher who 
was a little out of touch with the issue of class. Mm -hmm. And so that is definitely an identity that you have to be aware of yourself first before initiating that conversation. It sounds like in this situation, she may have had privilege um, in in the area of class. She Mm -hmm. was, if, and, and I am being a sumptuous, but it just sounds like from the conversation we had, maybe she, she was not working class or middle class growing up or for whatever reason, maybe she had the means and maybe you didn't. I don't know. And that would be something to be open with. And, and it's possible she didn't. Um, maybe that, maybe knowing more information about that specific um, item. I can't remember what it was, a, a bag or jacket or uh-huh. shoes. shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shoes. <laughs> So, yeah, so it, it's going to happen, especially with, you know, working with people that one of these topics is going to come up and, and I'll give you another example. Like, um, sometimes I hear, and this, this happens, we teachers get frustrated with parents mm-hmm. and it, it's, those are difficult relationships to navigate and parents sometimes want one thing and uh, teachers want another thing. But sometimes I have been in conversations where it quickly goes to the teachers quickly say the parents don't care mm-hmm. or the parents don't want to. And so there might be some information I know about the family um, that I can share that I can kind of I can kind of shed some light that maybe that's not the case. But even that aside, uh, knowing the parents that I work with, like the population in general, they are of low SES. And so often um, their concerns are more on like the hierarchy of needs are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to get their kids fed. They're trying to make sure they have a roof over their head, especially during this time right now. It's not that they are not being responsive because they don't want to. It's the times in which um, they can be. Maybe the only time they can text you is at 10 o'clock at night. And then the teachers are saying, oh, I got a message at this time at night. Mm-hmm. And so just knowing that that's a play that we being in these positions that we are as the teacher, that is a, a, a point of privilege as well. So um, being in like this um, educator uh, top, you know, I'm teaching you things model or, or approach um, is a piece of privilege. So just being aware of your own whenever you're having a difficult conversation that um, revolves around one of these identities is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good advice. Um, <clears throat> sometimes you don't even realize, like you were saying, you know, you, it's easy to look at the teacher and say, oh, the teacher made these, and the teacher is making these statements that are very classist and the teacher is talking about um, things that I think are inappropriate. But why is it that that was so clear to me? Why did that bother me so much? Well, I, I saw it very clearly because we did grow up working class. We did grow up without anything brand name. And I still refuse to buy anything like that because I just don't understand the point. But <laughs> but it, that's, that's a part of my identity, I guess, because it's not uncommon for people to buy brand name items, right? That's a normal thing people do. And I'm a bargain hunter. And I that is part of who I am. So, <laughs> so um, that's a really good point is, is not just to consider how the teacher is interacting with this, this issue of privilege, but also where you fall in your identity, where do you, you know, where do you stand and why is this, why are you seeing it in this way? So whenever you approach the conversation, you at least have that awareness about yourself and you are aware that people have different identities in that area and that many of them are, are, I mean, it's, it's okay, you know, but we have to be aware of our students and who we're interacting with and make sure that we're allowing them to develop their identities in a healthy way. 
So that's great. I like that a lot. Good tip. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Last question. My very last question to you is if people walk away with just one thing from this episode, what should it be? Hope. Okay. That's a nice one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> back to the, the topic. I keep saying it over and over again in my brain. Difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. You're going to come out on the other side. You will. And like I said, if, 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 if worst case scenario, things stay the same, that's okay. There's going to be other opportunities and maybe, maybe your instinct or gut. Um, if you've been trying, 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 you've taken, you've taken a step back. Like we said, you've taken a break, mm-hmm. you've reached out positively. We've done all the things that we've kind of reviewed and there's still nothing there. Then mm-hmm. maybe that that's where it, it's supposed to be. And yeah. you can tell your administrator, I've done these, these are the things I've done. X, Y, Z, this is where I've tried to, you know, and I've done everything I can, but you cannot push or pull a person at the end of the day. They got to want to motivate. They got to be, want to be motivated to change. And Mm -hmm. so just know that you, you will have successes in other areas and you'll build relationships. And there is hope that things will, you know, change on a bigger level, even if um, there's one or two that might've gotten away. That's Mm -hmm. okay. You know, that's really true because sometimes you feel like I have worked so hard with this future and I see zero impact. But for one, that doesn't mean that there has been zero impact. You might have planted a seed and at some point that seed might sprout and that seed might, you know, might grow and and change something that that teacher does on, on some level. So you could have made a positive impact that you don't even know about. And also sometimes maybe you didn't. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that they are never going to learn anything, right? You can't, you, you are not solely responsible for this person's learning. Just because they did not grow in the way that you had hoped or respond to your teaching doesn't mean that they are not going to grow somewhere or somehow. So you cannot hold all the responsibility for somebody else, for another adult, um, because it's just, it's impossible. You can't force a person to change or to learn. You can only control yourself. And even that is sometimes a challenge. So... <laughs> So yeah, I think that's a great, really great point. We should have hope. We need to have hope. Um, you cannot do this job without hope. <laughs> you really can't. So beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I really enjoyed talking about this topic and um, I'm sure the coaches did too. Thank you. It was fun again. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you're a two-timer. So, okay, coaches, I want you to listen in next week to episode 18. We're going to talk about um, how to build credi- credibility with teachers, and then we're going to give you some strategies about how you can initiate work with teachers and really get yourself in the door to start some coaching cycles and make some positive impact in classrooms. So till then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.